Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Corbett Report Radio. You are tuned into the Corbett Report here on Republic Broadcasting. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, your host and guide for the next hour as we start to explore the Rio Plus 20 conference. So for those of you keeping track at home, Rio Plus 20 is the 20th anniversary of the UN conference that took place in 1992, the Earth Summit, that gave host to a whole bunch of nightmare-type policies and ideas, including really the Convention on Climate Change, which is the UN body that gave rise to the Kyoto Protocols, which uh, those of you in the U.S. probably don't know as much about because you never signed on. But for those of us, for example, Canadians in the crowd will know about this and the limits on carbon uh, em- emissions and things that it set for c- the signatory nations. And it was supposed to be this 20-year plan of really reducing or at least reducing the, uh, the growth in output of carbon emissions and uh, ultimately cutting back. Of course, Kyoto Protocol turned out to be a complete failure. And the UN Earth Summit uh, gave us Agenda 21 on top of that, this idea that, uh, well, really the basis of communitarianism in our public life. And of course, it's wrapped in all of this wonderful rhetoric about social responsibility and sharing and caring in communities, etc. But really, it's just a, a tool that uh, the people who want to micromanage every aspect of our daily lives could then use to try to get into our daily lives and tell us what to do. So it is just part of the agenda of control that we've outlined in so many different ways in the past here on the program. So we are going to start covering Rio Plus 20 tonight. What's actually taking place in Rio de Janeiro? Uh, well, actually... This week, it's wrapped up now, so we'll be taking a look at what's what's been accomplished or what has not been accomplished and what's likely to happen from here. But there's already some positive signs from this uh, conference that have emerged, and uh, one of them is the real disintegration of the global warming myth, which was such a driving part of the original Earth Summit in 1992, back when people were just starting to hyperventilate about the absolute a catastrophic rise in temperatures that was guaranteed to start happening within the next 20 years. And, of course, here we are, and the catastrophic rise has not taken place, but that doesn't stop some of the uh, the most devout warmists from continuing to spout their sky-is-falling chicken-little philosophy. But, interestingly enough, a lot of uh, people are now openly admitting that the global warming agenda and uh, basically that part of the negotiations has pretty much been taken off the table. And we're getting this from no less a source than Andrew Revkin, who some of you out there might know as the Dot Earth the blogger for New York Times, who has been writing about the global warmists for years now. And even he has an editorial that came out uh, just yesterday, uh, Dispatches from Rio, none from Obama. And uh, it's talking about Obama's lack of presence at this conference and why Obama did not show up to the to this Rio Plus 20 conference and basically talking about how global warming is just not something that the general electorate cares about and never really has. And that's a, that's a pretty startling admission for someone who's basically made it his life mission to make people scared about this and want to, uh, to do something about it. Well, he's basically admitting it's just not on the political agenda. And uh, once again, we have to see this as a good thing, because obviously the global warmists, uh, although the people who believe in that philosophy and that idea, of course, believe that they're acting in the best interest of the world, but the people who are funding and supporting that idea 
are more concerned with how it gives them the levers to go into people's daily lives and control every aspect of them through carbon rationing cards and other such monstrosities that have been proposed. So this is all of the type of stuff that's swirling around this Rio Plus 20 conference on sustainable development. So when we come back, we'll start interrogating some of these ideas a little more closely. And on that note, yes, this is the Friday night edition of the broadcast, so we will be taking a look at some of the interviews I conducted this week along these lines at CorbettReport.com. So stay tuned right there. We'll be back right after this. Few and unknown, many and known. It's all obscure behind the eye. Initiation, right in which you are. Welcome back to the program, friends. Tonight on Corbett Report Radio, we are talking about Rio Plus 20, the conference on sustainable development taking place in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, uh, this week. And in fact, just having wrapped up, and we're talking about the basically the effects of this type of conference in general, uh, because this is just one part of an unfolding agenda, an Agenda 21 that literally was drafted up at the first Rio conference on sustainable development, the Earth Summit, back in 1992. So tonight we're going to start interrogating some of the assumptions and some of the processes that are taking place there, all under the guise of this wonderful caring for the Earth, caring for people, caring for the future of the planet Uh, type rhetoric that we see them rolling out every time they want to institute their most authoritarian parts of their agenda. Because make no mistake, authoritarianism comes in the garb of caring for people and being a nice, pleasant force on this planet. Uh, Dictators don't get to positions of power by promising to be dictators. They get to positions of power by promising to make things right, make things better, lift man up. And of course, all they're talking about really is uh, is the type of things that people want to hear to get them into positions of power. In the exact same way, this Conference on Sustainable Development is talking about, oh, well, you know, the, the poorest people in the world are obviously having incredible difficulties in the current system as it is. Therefore, we have to think about transfers and, and other such ways of making sure that they don't get left behind, etc. And of course, it all sounds like it's for the benefit of the poorest people on the planet. But who gets to come in and make these decisions? Who gets to organize the system by which we're going to attempt to come to some sort of international order? Well, it's the exact same technocrats, bureaucrats, and banksters who have been behind the well, engineered destruction of the world economy. So how can we possibly leave it in their hands? Well, we have to start, as I say, interrogating the underlying rhetoric and assumptions that sound so great because a lot of people can be taken in by them. And sustainable development is one of those uh, types of terms that they use to get people's attention, along with other things like corporate social responsibility. Well, we want corporations to be socially responsible. We want them to be responsive to the social context that they're placed in and and uh, to be accountable to the people. But how do you go about doing that? Well, we must need some more governmental structures and laws and other ways for the government to become more intrusive in your life. And by government, we don't mean the government that could at least theoretically be held to account by the people. We mean international governing structures set up by the UN. So I think we all know where this is going. 
And uh, for more on this, let's turn to an interesting conversation I uh, took that took place earlier today, but between myself and Julie Beal of GetMindSmart.com. She's a researcher based in the UK who's been writing about these types of issues: corporate social responsibility, Agenda 21, communitarianism, and how this ties into the greater agenda. So let's listen to the beginning part of that interview that's up on CorbettReport.com. Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It's the 22nd of June, 2012, here in Japan. And today I'm joined on the line from the UK by Julie Beal, a UK-based researcher who has a brand new website, GetMindSmart.com, where she talks about issues from Agenda 21 to communitarianism to corporate social responsibility and many other aspects of the bigger, bigger picture besides. So, Julie, it's great to have you on the program today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, I wanted to start off today with something that's happening as we speak in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and of course that's the Rio Plus 20 Conference on Sustainable Development that's taking place right now, and uh, this is, for people out there who might not know, the 20th anniversary of the Earth Summit in 1992, which brought us, among other things, eventually the Kyoto Protocol sprang out of that, but also Agenda 21 itself actually sprang from this conference. So let's start talking about Rio Plus 20 and the significance of this conference and uh, and the Earth Summit in 1992 as well, and how this fits into the bigger agenda. Okay, well, it's been 20 years since the first Agenda 21 was put together at the Earth Summit in 1992 in Rio. They're back in Rio, and they are beefing up the agenda that they've had going for the last 20 years. Most people only know about um, sustainable development and carbon, and they've fallen for it. Um, but there's a hell of a lot more to it than that. I started to research it because I read about communitarianism and how it links to Agenda 21, and it's the work of Nikki Rapana that you need to check out from the Anti-Communitarian League. Most people won't understand what communitarian means. It's a kind of neutral-sounding word that sounds quite positive, really. Um, a lot of the things that communitarians are saying ring quite true. However... Agenda 21 has made them not only international, global um, pushes for how we should organise our lives, but it's also been made the law. Um, Yet again, most people only know about sustainable development. They don't know about corporate social responsibility, and that's where most of my research has taken me, to uh, uh, just to augment the work of Nikki Rapana, really, because she she dealt with, with sustainable development. I wanted to know what equity meant, because that's one of the parts of Agenda 21. So would you like me to explain what equity means? Okay, so Agenda 21 is all about balancing the three E's, Economy, seems all right. Um, um, environment, we all know about that one. And equity, which means social equity, which means we're all to be equal, all to be all of the human rights talk is used for this. Um, it has a lot of positive sounding arguments, but the way that it's leading is to is enforcing those and enforcing things by law is a very very different matter to theorizing about them and that's my main contention so so let's let's back up for a moment let's talk a little bit more about communitarianism because as you say i think a lot of people don't know what that is and will just assume it's the same as communism but there there is a difference let's talk a little bit about what communitarian is communitarianism is specifically 
there's been a lot of communitarian um, uh, theorists, uh, such as, uh, well, Amitai Etzioni is the main one, Michael Sandal, Michael Walzer. Um, it's about... It's, it, it comes down to the age-old argument between self-interest and the good of society or the collective. How much should you sacrifice your own self-interest for the good of your community? And communitarians argue that we should have a balance. It sounds very reasonable, but it's something that I would teach my children, for instance, to have a balance between the two. But I wouldn't make it the law. I think as soon as you start to make it the law, then the whole the, the communistic, socialist aspect comes in. It's the good of the collective, and that's the thing that you need to bear in mind. That's, there's a whole lot of bioethical arguments, for instance, that can be made for the good of the collective. Well, that's right. So, so it's uh, a concern for the community is a good thing, but to make that into a law is is where we start to deal with some very different issues, as you're detailing in your website. So let's let's think about how that plays into these specifically the business aspect of things, because now we're having corporations, for example, touting their corporate social responsibility and talking about oh, feel good yeah, type yeah. rhetoric. That's that, a bit. Right. It makes people feel good to hear that type of stuff coming from, you know, Coca-Cola or whatever corporation might be in question. But again, there's part of a, an agenda going on here. Well, there certainly is. I mean, this is what we've all been calling for. And the, the mood has been there and it's been, I feel, amplified by the media on purpose to... Um, it's what the Occupy activists are calling for. They want accountability. We all want accountability from the rich, rich mega corporations, the multinational corporations. And so, yes, it's now company law the, the world over that all corporations must have um, wider regard to the interests of all stakeholders and must consider the interests of all stakeholders in any decisions that they make. It sounds quite woolly language, and yet the, I've read quite a lot about this. Um, and, um, well, basically, what, what really got me is that all of the big corporations are now socially responsible. So what does socially responsible mean? It means that they're caring. It means that they they have a wider regard for the community. Um, and, of course, it also involves sustainable development because that's, all, that's a socially responsible thing to do. And all of the big corporations, including the chemical companies, Coca-Cola, they're all got their... Um, corporate social responsibility statements put out and that's what most of them boil down to is statements of intention and then they'll have some finely tuned programs which they'll trumpet the um the the results and yes i agree they're making a small difference my biggest gripe with them is that they're not addressing planned obsolescence 
Well, that is the beginning of the conversation that I conducted with Julie Beal earlier today. So I hope you will go to CorbettReport.com to listen to the rest of that interview. Very wide-ranging conversation. We get into such things as planned obsolescence and social capital and corporate social responsibility and uh, even smart dust and other such nightmare visions of a completely micromanaged future. So make no mistake, there are aspects of this that sound good and at least theoretically would be good, like corporate accountability, but all it's really doing is ushering in an era of intense micromanagement that will allow the authorities, the would-be so-called self-proclaimed authorities, more power over every aspect of our lives. And that's what's really behind this greater agenda, the communitarian agenda of Agenda 21, and these types of UN Sustainable Development Conferences like the one we see taking place in Rio de Janeiro this week. So on that note, let's take a short break. We'll be back with more information on Rio Plus 20 right after this. Welcome back, friends, to Corbett Report Radio. Tonight on the program, I am going through some of the interesting tidbits that's coming out of the Rio Plus 20 conference and what the real agenda is behind it. Because as I think we've uh, already demonstrated tonight, and this will continue to demonstrate, there is much more of an agenda behind the fuzzy, feel-good rhetoric of Agenda 21 than the uh, greenies would like to let on. And we can dismiss people like that by calling them greenies, but it doesn't go to the heart of what's really the problem of this. If people are concerned about the environment, that's one thing. But if they're using the people's natural concern about the environment as a type of leverage to try to get them to do what they want and to micromanage their lives, that's something altogether more insidious. So we're taking a look at how Agenda 21 and the communitarian philosophy behind it leads to these types of social controls and the prospect of a future in which everything is micromanaged down to the level of what you eat and uh, how you uh, spend your time and all of that, all in the name of this feel-good economy. And uh, some more indications that there's a lot more happening beneath the surface than on top of the surface comes from stories like this one. This is uh, via uh, this is from National Review via BlacklistedNews.com. Christ turns green at UN Earth Summit, literally. And this uh, article says, quote, Green guru James Lovelock was right. He warned last week that the green religion is now taking over from the Christian religion. Now at the UN Earth Summit, even the image of Christ has been made a forcible convert to the eco-faith as the city of Rio's as the city of Rio is bathing the iconic statue of Christ the Redeemer in green light. This comes on the heel of the heels of a Rio Plus 20 side summit in Belo Horizonte, Brazil, where Naomi Tsur Jerusalem's deputy mayor for planning and environment led a discussion about how holy sites around the world can be used to indoctrinate pilgrims visiting venerated places like Bethlehem, Calvary, and the burial site of King David. The workshop on green pilgrim cities took place at the World Congress of the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives, the group responsible for implementing the UN's Agenda 21 Sustainable Development Plans at the local level. 
Well, I will uh, let you continue reading that article for yourself. It'll be linked up in the show notes for tonight's episode. But just think about what's going on, the type of indoctrination people are going through now as literally they're starting to transition from Christian and other uh, religions into the green religion, which they hope will unite us all behind their agenda. Of course, the question is, what can we do against this? And for those of you out there who do realize that there's something very, very worrying about all of this, what can we do positively to stop it from unfolding like the nightmare that it is? Well, there are answers and there are some solutions that are already being implemented and we have to draw attention to them and applaud them when and where they're taking place. So from the newamerican.com, we have this. Alabama adopts first official state ban on UN Agenda 21. Quote, Alabama became the first state to adopt a tough law protecting private property and due process by prohibiting any government involvement with or participation in a controversial United Nations scheme known as Agenda 21. Activists from across the political spectrum celebrated the measure's approval as a significant victory against the UN sustainability plot, expressing hope that similar sovereignty-preventing measures would be adopted in other states as the nationwide battle heats up. The Alabama Senate Bill 477 legislation, known unofficially among some supporters as the Due Process for Property Rights Act, was approved unanimously by both the House, State House and Senate. After hesitating for a few days, late last month, Republican Governor Robert Bentley finally signed into the law the widely, wildly popular measure, but only after heavy pressure from activists forced his hand. Virtually no mention of the law was made in the establishment press, but analysts said the measure was likely the strongest protection against the UN scheme passed anywhere in America so far. The law, aimed at protecting private property rights, specifically prevents all state agencies and local governments in Alabama from participating in the global scheme in any way. End quote. Well, there are a lot of different themes touched on right there, but I think some of them that we want to highlight is the fact that, one, this type of Agenda 21 and other international agreements can be stopped, and there, you can work at the state or local level to stop it being implemented in your area specifically. And two, let's all not forget the important part of that article showing that activism does have an, a, a demonstrable effect, especially at the more local levels of our government, including the state governments or local municipality governments, where people, individual people, can have a much greater effect than on the, uh, the politics in Washington or what have you. So, in this case, uh, the activists in Alabama got basically pressured the governor into signing this into law, this legislation that prevents Agenda 21 from being implemented at the state and local level. Well, what a victory that is. And, uh, and certainly, as someone who is against statism of any kind, I don't necessarily think that the ultimate answer will come through political action at the state level, but I think it is certainly much better than uh, act- politi- waiting for political action at the national level or, God forbid, the international level, as is it, we all know the types of monstrosities like Agenda 21 that are formed by the United Nations and the other international bodies that presume to have some sort of authority over individual nation-states. Well, again, that gets us into the false dialectic of choosing the nation-state over the international system. Well, how about if I choose neither and choose to be a free, sovereign individual over which no authority or presumed or would-be authority has any right to tell me what to do or to force me into acting? But that's another debate altogether. Still, the point is that individual activists can have an effect, and just as Alabama has adopted this state ban on Agenda 21, so too can that happen in other places, other municipalities, other states, even 
places in other countries. So if you are listening to this broadcast and you are concerned about the unfolding of this agenda, here is an example of what you can do to help prevent it. Once again, the link will be in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com. Let's take a short breather. We'll be back with more right after this. Here we are on this Friday night edition of Corporate Report Radio, and we are talking about Rio Plus 20, the Conference on Sustainable Development that's just wrapped up in Rio de Janeiro, and the long-term consequences of what whatever they've decided at this conference are not quite clear yet, but we will undoubtedly see them to see them unfolding in the coming days, weeks, months, and years until the next uh, Rio conference or whatever conference the UN or whatever globalist organization presumes to throw to try to put us all into their web of sustainable development control or whatever fuzzy feel-good moniker they want to put on it. So let's continue exploring this agenda, picking it apart, finding out what's behind it and what the real impetus is. And to do that, we're going to listen to an extended part of an interview that I conducted earlier this week with Joanne Nova, who's an Australian uh, media figure. She was a TV presenter. She's been on the radio hundreds of times, quite well known in Australia. And she runs joannenova.com.au, a great resource on the global warming scare. And uh, we talked about the Rio Plus 20 conference, and I think she had a lot of interesting things to say about that agenda and where it's heading and who's behind it and what it's all about. So let's listen to this. Once again, the full interview is up at CorbettReport.com. Well, as you point out, this is part of an international agenda. And in fact, Agenda 21 is something that we've oft heard about, but but tend to know very little about. Let's talk a little bit about what what this is and where it came from and how it's being pushed at, at this conference. Look, I think James Dellingpole's description of Agenda 21 was just the best. And he wrote in his book, Watermelons, he said, look, you know, like most people, he thought it didn't amount to much. And I agree with him. I didn't either. He said it sort of sounded like Agenda, well, agenda 21 sounds like what area 51 you know the roth the roswell side where the aliens land and whatnot it sounds like nutbag kind of stuff and the kind of thing that you don't really need to worry about and the fact that it was done in rio 20 years ago i mean really seriously as james points out if it was important surely we would have heard by now and it also was non-binding voluntary commitments and whatnot but as James points out, those non-binding voluntary commitments are easy for governments to sign because they can sign anything that's non-binding. But what happens after that is that the UN has this enormous machinery and thousands of uh, volunteer helpers and non-volunteers, the people who are paid by World Wildlife Fund and Greenpeace and whatnot, who are hundreds of billions of dollars in those corporations. There's a whole army of people there to try and force governments to stick to their voluntary commitments. So in a sense, it's a voluntary commitment and it's easy for them to sign. But in the real world, they often end up trying to meet these agreements that they signed off so quickly to and that voters had no say in at the time. So in one sense, these types of conferences can lead to these these lofty statements that we all hear about and, you know, everyone gets applauded at the end of the conference, but then they go home and reality sets in. But but there's the other side of that, as you say, as, as people struggle to at least maintain the face of these types of agreements. And it did take the better part of 20 years for Kyoto to openly fall apart, although no one's really been going along with it for that long. So So do you think, I mean, is this something that we need to be generally paying attention to? Do we have to be concerned with what the, our so-called leaders are, are signing us on to at conferences like these or can we uh, safely afford to ignore this? 
Well, you know, in this day and age of austerity, I think we should not only be focused on what they're aiming to do, but just what they're doing currently. And if we think of the cost of sending 45,000 people on a, a long holiday to Rio, then surely governments need to, sorry, voters and journalists need to start paying attention to just whether we can afford these kind of large functions, which, when we look at the science behind them, is so paper thin. I mean, these claims by James Hansen that we will lose half of all speed species by 2100. It's just extraordinary. Now, James Hansen is an astronomer. If uh, a physicist speaks out on climate change, people howl him down and say, you know, it's not it's not his turf, he's speaking outside his specialty. But here's James Hansen, an astronomer, saying half of all species will be extinct by 2100. It, it's so incredible. It's, it's ridiculous. We look at the facts, and thanks to Matt Ridley, I've got some data sitting in front of me pointing out that in the last 400 years, about 1.3% of mammals and 1.4% of birds have become extinct. Now, every extinction is a tragedy, so we shouldn't be proud of those figures, but this is nothing like the 50% that James Hansen is saying will theoretically happen by 2100. And extinctions, by the way, apparently peaked in 1900 at about 1.6% per annum and have fallen since then to about 0.2 per annum. So we appear to be doing a lot better now than 100 years ago. And I think a lot of that is due to economic wealth because countries with wealth, of course, have the money to be able to look after their forests and trees. That's where the best national parks in the world are, of course, in these dastardly, evil, wealthy countries who can afford to set aside lands and areas and to look after them and set quotas. And the biggest environmental damage is going on in the poor countries where the best thing we can do for them, I think, is take away these... um, giant bureaucratic money-feeding machines that really funny funnel money through the UN and other groups to corrupt leaders in those countries and help those countries get on their feet with real free market, a true free market and world trade that is, um, I guess, you know, the products that they can make, the agricultural products. It's the libertarian in me speaking again. Well, you'll find a ready audience for that, I think, on the Corbett Report. But, but certainly, uh, it, it boggles my mind that people like uh, James Hansen would, would anyone would be listening to his pronouncements, given that it was his pronouncements on the likely outcome of climate change back in the 1980s that uh, that started a lot of the the hype around this. And yet they've all proven disastrously. Well. Exactly, exactly, not even below his lowest kind of estimates of things. Now, apparently, and again, going back to something Matt Ridley sent me, the estimate of 40,000 species going extinct every year came originally from a conservationist called Norman Myers in 1979. So these numbers have been knocking around for ages. And he wasn't the only one. E.O. Wilson, uh, the Harvard biologist, apparently also spoke of about 27,000 species going extinct each year was his forecast. So there have been plenty of others who put forward these dire predictions. Hansen's just the latest in a long line of them. But again, and those numbers I quoted before, about 1.6 extinctions per annum in 1900, came from the American Museum of Natural History. So looking at the credible data... We should be concerned about species extinction, but we shouldn't be trumpeting these ridiculous proposals that we're going to lose so many of them by 2100. And yes, we do need to be aware that they are simply changing the goalposts. And, and the real aim of these things, the Rio 20 and whatnot, is the aim is to get more power to the UN, more money to the bureaucrats and the people who work in that system, which is not open to competition in the sense that those of us who work in a free market have to compete with ideas, with money and 
placing money on the table that belongs to people who are very interested in getting it back and making sure it works. The UN is funded through this distant mechanism of money from governments where voters have very little say in where the money goes. And they essentially operate in a competitive free environment. I mean, we've been calling them the regulating class because to me they operate through regulation rather than through competition. And they get a monopoly, as the UN has, and become almost unstoppable. And in a sense, they're a huge threat to the people of the planet. I mean, we look at biofuels and this concern about the um, CO2 levels caused possibly, as estimated by Indira Golkani and published in the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons, the biofuels mortality has increased about 200,000 deaths in 2010 alone. So that's in a single year. But because they used corn to feed cars instead of corn to feed starving children in Haiti and whatnot. So when you look at it like that, these kind of things are not just a waste of money, but they're absolutely deadly. And we need to turn the torch onto this and start getting governments to do the right thing by, I think we should bring them back to national level projects rather than foreign aid that's given to international, global, corporate and bodies and whatnot. Does that make sense? It, it certainly does, and I think you're right to identify the, the regulating classes as being this, this sort of superstructure that's being built up through these international conferences that presume to have the right to, to make these kinds of decisions. And, of course, the regulating class has to rely on certain myths and assumptions and overarching narratives that they can use to convince the people why they should even exist at all. And I think it's you're, uh, you're right to also highlight that this is a transitional period where they're transitioning off of the climate change uh, myth that has been promoted so so strongly, strenuously for the last few decades because it is falling apart. And I think that in itself is a hopeful sign and, and perhaps a sign that the, once these narratives are deconstructed, it's much more difficult for this regulating class to function. So I actually would like to turn uh, people's attention to an excellent uh, post that you have up right at the top of joannova.com.au right now, uh, Nature and that problem of defining hope in homo, homo sapiens denier. Is it English or newspeak? And this relates to uh, something that was published in Nature by Dr. Paul Bryan and a few others, and uh, you had an uh, excellent letter, I think, to Dr. Bryan. Perhaps you can tell people a little bit about this post. Well, there was a new paper, as you said, put out in Nature Climate Change called Promoting Pro-Environmental Action in Climate Change Deniers, and it discusses uh, climate change deniers almost like they're a you know, guaranteed subspecies of the human race who are obviously wrong. That's just an assumption built into this paper, and the word denier is used over and over again. And denier is one of my pet hates. It's one of those words which is ultimately incredibly insulting, especially to people, and we have Nobel Prize-winning physicists who have come down on the side of scepticism about the claims of global warming. So some of these people are our most esteemed, most awarded scientists in the last 50 years and they've come down on the side of the sceptics. So to call them deniers, which suggests a brain that's not capable of reason, a brain which is beyond logic and is into that emotional state, is incredibly insulting and there's the link also to the Holocaust denial movement, which of course is just ugly in every sense of the word, though they should be allowed to speak, says the libertarian. Um, so when I saw this, of course it makes your blood boil to read these kind of things with the word denier all through it, but we, we calm down and realise that the lead researchers in this probably just have never really come across the subjects that they're claiming to study. And they've picked up in the order around about, I think, $300,000 from the Australian government to do these studies over three years. And they've gone and investigated this class of deniers but never tested their base assumption 
which is what are the deniers really on about? And to do that, they would go to the leaders of the movement, wouldn't they? I mean, that's the obvious place to look if you want to understand a movement is to talk to the leaders. But they never do. They always interview people off the street. And, of course, the science and the topics that they get out of that kind of level of conversation is never going to be the sort which is what the issue is really about. If there was a real concern over carbon dioxide warming the planet, I think there's a layer of people out there who are the really sharp tools in the shed who would look at things and who'd come down on the side that the UN and the others are on if there was evidence for it. And they'd say, well, yeah, look, we really should be doing something. We can argue about what we should do but not argue about whether we need to do something. But it isn't like that at all. These influential people, who are often not in the media but quiet, they're the ones who are, you know, good friends of prime ministers because prime ministers knew them at, at university or whatnot, and it's informal. It's not published, so we don't see it in the mainstream media. But this level of uh, thinkers, I guess, they operating through the higher spans of connections of companies and corporates they're advising people to pull their money out of green markets they they can see the writing on the wall with this they're saying you know wind and solar are totally reliant on these government subsidies so pull your investments out of that area because it's it can only go down from here without government propping you stand to lose everything those businesses go bust as in soliandra in the u.s whereas you know companies like exxon and whatnot even if co2 was a problem and we act against it those companies don't have I, uh, they don't. It's not an all-or-nothing thing for them. They will still make profits, but people will still need oil ten or twenty years from now. Um, so for them, it's a very different ball game. And people don't seem to realise often the, the enormous stakes on the cards for things like the renewable energy industry. And in the EU, it's just collapsing as we speak, and people are pulling out. I think um, Germany just shut down one of its carbon trading markets because they simply just did. They didn't have the volume which is extraordinary for something which was so big only four years ago. Exactly right. And yet still we have, for example, the, the Christian Science Monitor coming out today about Rio Plus 20. The Earth Summit should look to reduce black carbon through carbon trading. So the same ideas keep getting dredged up at these types of conferences over and over, even though they've demonstrably failed in the past. Well, again, I think we need to consider each of the trading ideas on their own benefits and costs and whatnot and for me the big thing that fails with co2 the reason why a free market solution is not a solution for co2 when i am a free market girl most of the time is that co2 is ubiquitous it's everywhere you know mice breathe co2 out and so do the the yeast the algae they're all working with co2 and the plants and whatnot even the rocks damn it the rocks have got a role in co2 so when you're looking at something that is ubiquitous we automatically have to create people who are included and who are excluded rocks who's going to pay the the rock share or take the reward for what the rocks do in terms of binding co2 and making it limestone i'm um, so automatically it doesn't work with the free market because so much of the so many of the players in there can't possibly pay or get paid for their role in the entire cycle and the accounting for it all, the right. auditing of the accounting, just astronomical. So it was never a market that was going to work. It was hard to audit, difficult to monitor, expensive to track down who was who was emitting it because it's a gas that spreads so far and wide so quickly. It's not easy to track levels close to a factory and see that it tallies and whatnot. Um, you know, in the end, that was never going to be a solution. Black carbon, maybe. I don't, I'm open to suggestion on whether a free market might be useful for black carbon. It, it definitely does seem to be a pollutant. It's possibly the reason why the Arctic sea ice is declining. It has had some summer declines when you drop all that black dust 
all over the white ice, it changes the albedo, the way the light reflects off the ice. So in that case, it could well be that there is a human influence on the Arctic sea ice and it could be that it's the shipping tracks because there's so much shipping traffic going across close by, leaving that black dust from their diesel exhaust. And diesel particulates too, some of them most nasty carcinogens known to man. So there are definitely real pollutants out there. Whether we need a free market on black carbon, I'm not sure. I would be sceptical of initial claims. I'd like to see it backed up. Well, then... Coming to the to the fundamental theme of this conversation, am I am I overly optimistic to think that perhaps there is uh, something positive from the fact that people are stepping away from climate change and trying to focus on other issues, or is this just a, an endlessly repeating cycle that no matter how many myths we knock down, that they'll just have a new one up their sleeve to continue the agenda? That's it. I think we have to actually knock on the head the idea that. We need a government, an intra-governmental body to do this. The world is not ready for that yet. Um, we can't possibly vote on a, on a giant intergovernmental body. It's not possible on a worldwide scale. I think we should be highly suspect of anything coming out of the UN. I would like to see, I mean, there are real environmental problems which are international ones, but for those, I think we can rely on, on national governments of Western countries at least doing the right thing. If only we could highlight those problems and put them forward and just rely on the old human thing of shame, that reputation thing, the the idea that you should do the right thing because you should do the right thing, not because there's a market involved. I really don't think our worldwide democratic systems are even remotely close to coping with a worldwide government, and I just see tyranny and corruption coming out of these large international deals. I mean, they're trying to do everything with the UN. It's extraordinary. They've packed just about every kind of claim in there from how many children people should be allowed to have to everything about how we use our water resources, our ground, our mining, the air, the the way we travel to and from work, in whether we ride or choose a bike, although everything. So there's almost every aspect of our life that people are trying to regulate here. And my real concern is we're getting far too far away from any control by the people. What can you do when the Welcome back. Here we are in the final minutes of Corbett Report Radio tonight and wrapping up another week of broadcasts here on the program. So once again, thank you for your time this week. Tonight we've been talking specifically about Rio Plus 20 and the sustainable development and Agenda 21 and all of the other aspects of this part of the globalist agenda. And as uh, Joanne Nova was pointing out in that earlier segment, it is part of a bigger drive for this type of regulating class to presume to have authority over all of us by throwing out this feel-good language. So I think we have to be aware of that. And picking up from what we were talking about last night, we also have to realize that we have individual agency over our lives and what happens in our communities, and that is our strength, and that's what we can stand upon. So just like those people in Alabama passed the resolution and basically forced the governor into uh, into signing it into law that will prevent Agenda 21 from being implemented in Alabama, so people around the U.S. and indeed around the globe can participate in similar projects in their own municipalities, in their local areas 
areas or uh, even down at their community level. And uh, that's where the real power is. It's you and I taking action and getting out there and uh, and not going along with this agenda. Because as long as we're aware of it, then we have no excuse. We can resist and it will have an effect. On that note, uh, just a uh, programming note, people may have looked in the archives earlier this week for some of my uh, programs. There have been some problems with the archives this week as we've uh, been juggling around the schedule and adjusting to our new 9 p.m. slot. That should be coming all together now, and uh, everything should be in order, but I will keep people updated on my Twitter, as usual, twitter.com slash corporate report for any important updates about the website and where things are at. And uh, also on that note, I am a completely listener-supported media entity, so I do rely on the kindness of the people out there who find this information useful to help keep this going. Once again, you can buy DVDs that support the Corbett Report and also give you something that you can use to hand out to other people with information that hopefully will be valuable to you. And you can also subscribe to my newsletter. It comes out each Saturday, once a month. There's a subscriber-only video. And in uh, tomorrow's edition of the uh, the International Forecaster that I write on a weekly basis, and that's part of that subscriber newsletter, I'm going to be talking about people taking power into their own hands when it comes to the banksters and things of that sort. So I hope that will be useful to you as well. On that note, another incredibly jam-packed transmission on the program next week, and we're going to be talking about a whole range of issues, including geopolitics and psychopathy and all of the other mix of interesting subjects you've come to expect from Corbett Report Radio. So that's it for me for tonight. Hope you have an excellent weekend, and I hope you're back to join me on the broadcast next Monday. Until then, thank you all for listening, and take care. <laughs>